Get ready to meet the trailblazers driving the human change behind our clean energy future. This week, our trailblazer is Seth Godin, best-selling author and mastermind of what makes us tick. More than a decade ago, Seth told us that global warming was anything but a ticking time bomb. In fact, it was a marketing fail. Global is good, warming sounds cozy. The crisis was ignored. Today, we need people to transition to a cleaner lifestyle urgently. So how do we change the status quo? Seth challenges us to see the power of framing, symbols, and rewards to inspire community action. It's time to make our decarbonized future more tangible. We're here to fuel a new energy conversation, and it starts with you. Well, Seth Godin, thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to have you joining us here on the Trailblazer series. I'm really excited to delve into this topic with you too, because you're someone who's been writing for a long time about the the way that we tell stories, the way that we communicate about the things that matter. And you wrote some time ago now that climate change is a marketing problem. It's a marketing challenge. Why did you describe it that way? Well, it was more than a decade ago, I think. There was a, a large number of things to unpack around climate change, but in the case of global warming itself, global is good, warming is good. So global warming, not a great brand name. And my suggestion was that we call it atmosphere cancer because there are no cancer deniers, because cancer is understood to be a chronic degenerative disease that we've got to get on right away. And atmosphere is something that's measurable and scientific. And one of the things that uh, I think would be really fascinating to do, I'm trying to lead the charge here, is if we all shaved our heads, it might send a message that we're really actually quite serious about dealing with this cancer that's in front of all of us. Definitely. I wonder if you are building any momentum with that part of the initiative? No, I, you know, here's the problem. The problem is that we have redefined politics to be things you're not allowed to talk about. And... It's one thing to say politics is, should there be a tax on landlords? It's quite another to say that climate is a political issue, because it's not. But some people want it to be. And therefore, it's very hard to do a lot of the work that I would like to do, and also be persistently and consistently talking about this crisis that's right here in front of us. And so behind the scenes, I've worked with a bunch of groups. But One of the challenges that we have is that organized community action is the answer to this problem, and we don't have systems in place for organized community action. Mm. I wanted to ask you, you've mentioned the name as one part of the problem. Another thing you flagged in some of your blogs is the pace and the images associated with climate change. So global warming is part of the issue, then the pace and the images. Can you explain that part? Well, human beings are really good at urgent, annoying, small problems that we will do almost anything to get rid of a ticking sound that's bothering us while we're trying to sleep. But if a problem is a week or a month or a decade away, we tend to minimize it. So that's how they sold cigarettes for such a long time. Sure, you're going to die a horrible death, but it's so far in the future, you don't need to worry about it. So here we have this global uh, illness that is going to affect all of us that requires an understanding of statistics and probability and patience, and science. That's a bad situation for most humans. And now, you know, we think about how much dislocation the pandemic has caused. Much of it was caused by the fact that it was invisible and it was far away. And it required an understanding of fractions and statistics. 
all of these things turned it into a political issue, even though it's not a political issue, because viruses don't care what party you're part of. Mm. Absolutely. One of the other things you write a lot about is how humans make choices. It's something that comes through as a consistent theme in your 20 plus best-selling books. I wonder, given our failure to make significant progress when it comes to climate change, what do you think this perhaps shows us that we don't understand well enough about how humans make choices, at least in how we're approaching this issue? Okay, so it, it's worth noting that we have made very significant progress, that despite multinational corporations spreading uh, falsehoods, and despite an entrenched status quo based on industrial uh, capitalism that's 100 years old, it has gone from something that wasn't discussed by anybody 30 years ago to something that is on the front page of the paper every day. And that's always the way culture takes action, that culture doesn't do it all at once. Roger's writing on this from 60 years ago is really clear. The early adopters are paying attention to what's new. You know, they're the ones who are saying, you know, NFTs need to move off the Ethereum blockchain, blah, 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 blah. And then you've got the laggards who still have a 12 flashing on their VCR and who still have a VCR. And so it takes a while for an idea to spread through a community and it is happening. The challenge that we have is that as a culture, we're going to have to figure out one global solution to a global problem. Capitalism, industrial capitalism, isn't going to solve this problem on its own because the incentives aren't aligned right now. And how would we think about realigning the incentives? Like, how do you get the capitalist engine, which is so powerful in spreading ideas and seeing technology, you know, um, perpetuate right across the world? How do you think about engaging that vehicle in this? Yeah, I mean, I think that uh, that EY and other accounting firms, I think that uh, various entities have a lot of leverage to get the words right and to get the numbers right. So we, you know, out of nowhere, almost everyone on earth is keeping track of how many Twitter followers they have, which is an absurd metric that means nothing, but it was gamified in a way that was easy to understand and you could make it go up. And what we can do is keep score of carbon and make their prizes associated with carbon going down and penalties associated with carbon going up. And you betcha that once uh, Milton Friedman type capitalists can make a nickel by making their score go in the right direction, they will make their score go in the right direction. Definitely. I wanted to ask you, you mentioned the challenge of finding a unified purpose. We're sort of heading into the COP26 uh, conversation later this year. There's a whole raft of different opinions. There's a whole raft of competing sets of stakeholders around my worldview wins, no, my worldview wins. How do you face into those sorts of problems? What advice can you offer those listening who want to play a constructive role in that challenge? So perfect is clearly the enemy of good here. And, you know, I started one of the first internet companies before the World Wide Web. We built things on email. And the number of people who were criticizing email rightly, not good for pictures, not good for data, not good for this, not good for that. They were correct. But email won for a really, really long time and turned into a multi-billion dollar industry. Because the thing that wins is never the perfect thing, ever. And, you know, for, for the people who are listening who are, who are comfortable with arithmetic, here's a simple question. Which would be better, assuming there are the same number of Hummers and Priuses in the world? If there are only two kinds of cars, Hummers and Priuses, which would be better? Getting the Hummers to go from 10 miles a gallon to 18 miles a gallon 
or getting the Priuses to go from 50 miles a gallon to 200 miles a gallon? And the answer is the eight mile a gallon improvement in the Hummers. And all you got to do is take out a pencil and paper to find out why. And the reason is something that's almost perfect, pushing it to perfect doesn't make that big of a difference. But the thing that's the big hole in the bucket, plugging that makes a huge difference. It swamps the other thing. And we don't need perfect right now or um, arguments right now. What we need is to say, there is a bucket right there and it has a really big hole in it. Let's plug the big holes right now. Yeah, definitely. And I wanted to touch on that with you because uh, one of the things you write a lot about is this idea of fitting in with the worldview and the notion that in order to be able to lead people and tell a compelling story, we've got to find a way of connecting in with their worldview and, and reaching them there and trying to influence them from there, which is all too often not the case. Can you sort of describe how we more often than not go wrong and how we can reapproach tackling people with a difference of opinion? So no one knows what I know or what you know, Holly. No one believes what we believe, wants what we want, engages with the world the way we do. Every single person has a different worldview, a different shorthand, right? We see someone who looks a little bit like we remember our mom looking like, and we have a different reaction to them than somebody who sees that person coming from a different background. And the only way to bring an idea to the world is with practical empathy, that you don't see what I see, and that's okay. But I will interpret this for you, set it up in a way that works with your worldview. So human beings generally uh, are drawn to affiliation or dominance. Affiliation is who am I with? Who am I next to? How am I fitting in? What are people like me doing? And dominance is who's up, who's down, who is beating me, who is beating my enemies? And if you think about you know, the rise of a fascist state or a demagogue, that's because they're selling people dominance, right? That I might not make your life better, but I will hurt your enemies. And other people are desperate for affiliation to understand that feeling that they get when they know they're in the right place in the right way with the right people. And what we have to do is figure out how for any given person, they can interpret this climate emergency in a way that matches their worldview and lets them take action. And, you know, a simple example is the people who have suggested that there's, there's only perhaps 50,000 full-time coal miners in the Northeastern United States. It's not a very big number. Let's just retrain them into solar panel installers. And why is that hard? It's hard because if your identity is that my father, my grandfather, and my great-grandfather do did what I do, and this is about pride and family and independence. So you bet I'm going back to that coal mine. You can't just say, oh, we'll pay you more money to be a solar installer because it comes with so much more overhead than that. And it's about being a victim or being a victor and figuring out how to create pathways for people to find dignity is the only way forward when we're giving people an option. I think that's such a powerful idea and that whole notion of practical empathy strikes me as being one of kind of the critical skill sets of a, a future leader. We're talking to people on, on this podcast series who are really excited about playing a role in that future conversation and being leaders that are creating the change they want to see. You've educated more than 60,000 students over your online courses. You've reached millions more through your books. What do you believe are some of the most important 
capabilities, uh, mindsets that future leaders can be taking into the challenges that lie ahead? Well, the first thing is leadership and management are not the same thing. And we confuse the two all the time. Managers use power and authority to get what they need and want. And we need managers. That's why fast food places have managers. If you don't have managers, no one shows up for their shift on time. Leaders, on the other hand, are doing a voluntary act and being followed voluntarily. Because if it's not voluntary, then you're a manager. And so first, embrace the fact that you've chosen to lead. And then second, realize it is inconceivable and impossible to lead everyone. You need the smallest viable audience, not the largest possible audience. If you can figure out which hundred people, if you change their mind, it would matter. Ignore everybody else. A hundred is enough. A thousand is enough. And too often, we think we're in the business of needing market share. We don't need market share. We need influence. And that influence is going to come by telling stories that other people choose to tell because it helps them get to where they're going. I was just thinking there when you were sharing that answer that, you know, so much of it is down to what we measure and that whole notion that we hear all the time, what we measure matters. But as you touched on there, you know, we're, we're obsessive about things like market share. Are we, are we being driven by entirely the wrong metrics? Is that a huge part of the problem? It's a design flaw almost. Yeah, right. So let's just pick an example. Uh, your favorite megalomaniac of the moment. Um, Tesla <laughs> is worth more than Ford. And two years ago, was the number one luxury car in all of California. And yet, there are almost no Tesla cars in the world because it's gonna be a long time before Tesla has more than 1% market share. That's not their goal. Their goal at the beginning was, how do I make it so that a person driving an $80,000 Mercedes in California, what is that, 10,000 people, feels stupid every time they see a Tesla? That their, was their entire marketing campaign. How do I break $80,000 Mercedes by putting a car right in front of them that makes them feel inadequate until they switch to this car? That's it, 10,000 people. It was enough to build a company worth more than the, one of the two oldest car companies in the world, right? You find the smallest viable audience, the smallest group of people who are willing, enrolled in following you, and you bring them something that shifts the conversation for them, and then the circle continues. And so, yeah, it might be getting 400 of the Fortune 500 CEOs to change their mind, but probably not, right? And, you know, one other tiny example. Last week, the inventor of the Post-it note died. And um, Post-it notes were a failure. They were a failure, and then they were a failure, and then they were a failure. And then what happened was the secretary of the chairman of 3M sent a case of post-it notes to the secretary of the chairman of the other Fortune 500 companies. And suddenly notes were coming out of the president and CEO's office with post-its on them from all these companies. And because they changed the minds of 400 or 500 secretaries, it started to filter through an organization. People like us do things like this. I love that approach. It made me think about the idea of thinking outside the box and also your distinction between management and leadership. How different are the cultures of these teams and these organizing structures that you've described as being so critical? How different do they need to be to what we might have inherited or grown up with in the industrial age? Well, one of the things that people in real companies, and you don't work for one and neither do I, real <laughs> companies want is authority. They want the ability to tell people what to do. 
and they don't want responsibility until they get authority. And the problem is companies are terrible at giving out authority because they just want to hoard that power. But they're eager to give out responsibility. They give it out like candy. So if you can decide to take responsibility and then lean into voluntary leadership, the authority will follow. But it doesn't go in the other direction. The other thing I wanted to touch on with you is empowerment and agency. One of the things that strikes me about kind of the narrative as it stands right now is it's quite disempowering. A lot of people feel overwhelmed, paralyzed, not sure how they can contribute. Can we do a better job? And what have you learned about people that have effectively uh, mobilized people, enlisted them in, in contributing to a worldview that we could do differently in how we approach something as big as global warming, climate change? Okay, so let's understand that almost everybody, well, start with this, everybody's going to die. And almost everybody is uncomfortable with that. And so if your marketing pitch begins with, you're going to die, it's not particularly effective. What has changed human behavior, for example, cigarettes in the United States, is a combination of making cigarettes more expensive and making cigarettes socially inconvenient. Neither one of them has to do with dying. That people stopped smoking because it was embarrassing to have to leave in the middle of the winter and stand outside and smoke. And they stopped smoking because the price doubled and they stopped smoking because drugstores stopped selling cigarettes. Those were the three reasons people stopped smoking. That happened 30 years, 40 years after the science was clear that cigarette smoking is going to kill you. That wasn't sufficient, amazingly. And so what we have to do is take everything off the 30, 50, you know, the, 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 the plan for 2040, all that stuff. Stop talking about that. And instead, create social and convenience-based urgency about around right now, right this minute. What do you get? And what does it cost if you stay on the path or don't follow the path? Because we are capable of creating those stories and putting those stories in the world. And they're true, which is a really big plus. But it's not going to happen because people have thought deeply, long and hard about uh, compromises to make today so that their grandchildren will thank them when they're dead. How coordinated do those stories have to be? You know, sometimes I think people are, uh, feel everything needs to line up, whereas I can see there being benefit to what you were talking about, status and identity and connection and accessibility. That kind of invites you to think that a myriad of stories that can touch a whole different set of communities and individuals would contribute. How does that kind of connect in with needing to push everyone in the same direction and have some sense of unified purpose, but also wanting to engage a really diverse set of people in, in the actual direction you're heading in? Yeah, it's an absolutely great question. And we can learn something from capitalism here. There isn't a coordinated sneaker campaign. Nike went first, found traction, and then Adidas copied part of it, and then Puma copied part of it, and then And One copied part of it. But the amount of money per capita spent on sneakers has gone through the roof, even though there's no coordinating body. And we can go down a long list of cultural shifts that have happened without a coordinating body. A coordinating body definitely helps, but there is never going to be a coherent brand campaign for how we're going to deal 
with this issue of climate. What's going to happen is someone's going to figure out how to tell a story that gains traction, that gives them enough resources to tell it again louder, or even better, the people who get the joke, who follow the joke, will have the resources to tell others. And that peer-to-peer shifting is the critical part of it, right? That, you know, if you think about what made fur coats go away, because at least in New York where I live, fur coats went away. And it wasn't that PETA figured out how to do it all by themselves. It was a loosely knit collection of stories for different reasons told by different people in different ways that led to a culture shift. And I know that we're in the middle of it and the culture feels like it's shifting way too slow. But if we just remember, you know, when I was born, it was against the law in parts of the United States for a black woman and a white man to get married, that it was until just a decade or two ago against the law for a gay couple to get married. I mean, this world is changing faster than it has changed in 10,000 years. The real urgency in front of us is to get clear about what the change we seek to make is and who we seek to change. That it might feel good to push people to use uh, grocery bags that can be reused 100 times instead of 30 times. But it feels to me like it's way more urgent to stop mining coal. And we just got to come up with our priority list, be really clear about how we're going to tell stories around those things so that urgently people decide that they were right all along in wanting this problem to go away. They were right all along in choosing to act a certain way. And people like us, we do things like this. What are those things? And we're missing that component right now of passionate, generous, dignified storytelling. Definitely. And I love that point around priority list and then people like us do this and what are these things? I think that connection between those two is so powerful. The other thing it strikes me to ask you about is is the importance of timing. You know, when you reference cigarettes, you talked about how it took 30, 40 years for kind of culture to catch up with the science. We had this moment with the pandemic where it felt like there was this enormous amount of momentum heading into 2020 around climate action. Then the pandemic hit, the world stopped as we know it. But we also had these moments where, you know, you hear stories of people in India for the first time looking up at the sky and seeing stars. And we were able to halt business as usual, life as usual, to a degree that was really beneficial for the environment. Is there a moment we can't miss here? I'm not sure who we is. I mean, like, before we started, I told you I'm pretty much done getting on airplanes. And part of the reason is because of the the climate impact. Part of the reason is because of the wear and tear. But I don't believe the whole world is done getting on airplanes. And um, if we had, you know, a emperor of the world, this would have been a great time to dismantle parts of the carbon economy. But we don't. And in fact, the game theory of one country versus another and the race to the bottom it turns out that, te- that the technology behind solar and wind is making it so that you win the race by walking away from coal, not because you're a good person, but because it's actually cheaper. And so that's using the systems in place, the cultural systems, the economic systems to cause the change that we seek to make. And I think a big part of what's missing from the climate movement is while the science is correct, the storytelling is poor and it is so much easier to tell a story that gets someone to buy a Hummer 
and so much more difficult to tell the story to get them to buy a Prius. And it's been interesting to watch, for example, with electric cars, because almost all of them have unbelievable performance metrics. They are faster than muscle cars. And there's a good reason for that. Not because anyone needs to go fast, but because it brings with it all the energy that goes around the status of my car is faster than yours without compromise. And it turns out humans are humans and we can try to turn humans into thoughtful long-term thinkers, but I wouldn't bet on it. I want to touch on your broader career in marketing. You're a guru in that space. You've written dozens of books in the area. What do you believe is the biggest misconception about marketing and what would you love to set the record straight on? Well, there are three things that people call marketing. The first one is advertising, which is what marketing was 30 years ago. The second one is hustle and selfishness and hype and spam and doing things behind people's backs and stressing them out. I don't want to call the first one or the second one marketing. I want to call the first one advertising. I want to call the second one hustle. And no one wants to be hustled. The third kind of marketing, which is the marketing that I've been talking about and trying to lead the shift toward is, would we miss you if you were gone? Are you being of service? Are you telling a true story and then keeping your promises? And when I talk to people about this, it's really hard for me to find someone who says, no, I don't like marketing like that. And if we point to the organizations that we respect and the businesses that we care about and the folks who are building things for the long run, that's how they're doing it. They're not doing it because they came up with some clever gimmick. They're doing it because their customers are getting smarter every day and they're starting to notice that you're keeping your promise. And this series is called Trailblazers. And one of the reasons we were excited to have you on board with it is not only because you are a trailblazer, but you're inspiring millions of trailblazers around the world. How challenging have you found it to step away from conventional thought to challenge thinking? How, from your own career standpoint, your thought leadership has often said, hold on, we need to rethink the way that we're doing that or flip that on its head. Has that been a challenging road to walk? It was challenging until I accepted the fact that uh, being popular wasn't the point. So I've never had a blog post that won the internet. I've never had a book that sold and sold and sold the way some best-selling books do. There are, most of the people on earth have no idea who I am. These are fine with me, just fine. My job is not to persuade the unpersuadable. My job is to whisper to maybe a million people and then they tell the others. And if I can come up with something that they can tell the others that helps them, then it's more likely to spread. But accepting that meant looking at my partners, my publishers, the people in social media and saying, no, I know what metrics you care about, but I don't care about those metrics. Has that been hard to stay true to? Have you done anything in particular to, you know, in challenging moments where perhaps you might've had a negative piece of feedback about a book or been challenged by someone that you really admired? How have you kind of built resilience in that regard? It's gotten actually much easier. Um, I don't know what any of my numbers are. I don't know how many books I've sold. I don't know how many people read my blog. I'm not on Twitter or Facebook or LinkedIn or any social media place where I'm using it the way I'm supposed to use it because I don't work for Jack Dorsey and I don't work for Mark Zuckerberg and you shouldn't either. And the whole goal is it's enough. 
that 30 years ago, the following I have, it would have put me off on the top of every chart. It's enough. And my goal is not to be the next Kardashian. We already have a Kardashian and that's plenty. So what I focus on is when someone I respect, when someone uh, who gets the joke, when someone who is not anonymous looks me in the eye and talks about how something changed for them, that's the measure of my days. And uh, I'm trying to teach people this habit because it makes your life better. That's a great measure to, I guess, judge your days by. Do you build that in? Is that an end of day reflection? Is there a gratitude practice that you've developed to bring that to the fore every day? I learned an enormous amount from my late parents. And um, on a good day, if I can even come close to a shadow of how they walk through the world, that's a goal. Um, and I don't, I mean, I'm so lucky. I'm so privileged. I had the benefit of the doubt for much of my career. It's not hard to do what I do for a living. It's not hard to do what you do for a living compared to what some people have to deal with. And I try to remind myself of that, that this is a privilege and this is a chance. And uh, it comes with, you know, swag, which is great. But I try not to whine about not having enough swag. (laughs) I like that. Can I ask you, I mean, with the prodigious output that you've got, I'm really intrigued about your creative practices. How do you come up with ideas? What do you do to kind of be where lightning strikes in terms of uh, discovering insights? Yeah, so this one's super easy. I wrote a whole book about it called The Practice. Uh, If you want to be a writer, the only method is to write. If you want to be a marketer, then you should market. Tomorrow, there's going to be a blog on my blog, a post on my blog. It's probably going to be post number 8,600 or something. And the reason it's going to be there tomorrow is not because it's my best post. It's going to be there tomorrow because it's tomorrow. And I decided that 20 years ago. And that's the, the whole secret. That's all there is. The only secret is to show up. And if you show up with stuff that's not good enough yet, you will have time to make it better. But if you wait for something that's perfect, you're going to be waiting forever. It comes back to that piece, you know, don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. It also strikes me that it's that idea of, you know, you are what you repeatedly do. What do you repeatedly do that have been the building blocks of what you've been able to achieve? Well, I mean, my particular thing that I bring people is I just notice stuff. If I see something in the world and I don't understand why it's working or not working, I try to come up with the theory as to why. That's all. And if you are surrounded by things and you don't understand how electricity turns lights on or you don't understand why everyone doesn't understand the urgency of climate change or you don't understand why this person is popular and this person isn't, hazard a guess. Come up with a theory. I just don't know what it would be like to live in a world where I assume everything is a magic trick. I assume nothing is a magic trick. And I'm just trying to understand how it's done. When you spoke about perfect, it got me thinking that, you know, hand in hand with uh, letting perfect be the enemy of the good is this fear of failure. Um, Do you have strategies and advice for people as to how to contend with that? Because that's so much of what holds us back from putting the hand up and asking the question, from starting the new business idea, whatever it might be. How have you tackled that yourself and what advice do you offer? Exactly. Well, I mean, watching you walk out on stage uh, with your charisma, with your energy, uh, it's extraordinary. And I know because you are a normal human being, that inside you feel like a little bit of an imposter. And so do I. Like, what right do we have to be up there? 
And leadership is an act of being an imposter because you can't be sure it's going to work. You have to act as if. And so if you make pacemakers for a living, if you are doing something where you have to be right every single time, I hope that you don't innovate. I hope that you do it exactly the same every single time. But for the rest of us, innovation means dancing with failure because the, the win is to make things better, but we can't do anything that's better if we're going to do it the same as we did it yesterday. And so for me, you don't run a marathon and say, I will run a marathon, but I refuse to get tired. No one can do that because if you do, if you pull it off, that means you didn't go fast enough. Everyone who finishes a marathon got tired. Those people figured out where to put the tired. And when it comes to the fear of failure, it's simple. You cannot lead if you're a normal person without a fear of failure. And the work is not to make the fear go away. It's just to figure out where to put it. Yeah, I love that idea. Find out where to put the failure. Find out where to put the fear of the failure, you know, and work through that. I want to ask you, you're an incredible teacher and you mentioned your parents. This may be the answer to this question, but who have been your most powerful teachers and what have they taught you? Um, So I wrote a blog post a really long time ago about heroes and mentors. Uh, there's this sort of mentor culture that got out of hand, which is if you could just find some successful person who was going to take care of you and whisper in your ear and all these other things, that would be good. But it doesn't scale. Those There aren't enough of those people in the world. Heroes, on the other hand, they don't even know you exist. You can just ask yourself, what would this person do? Right? I'm, I want to direct a movie. What would Spike Lee do in this situation? I want to make a jazz record. What would Miles do? Right? And I got tons of heroes and I'm so lucky that I met some of them and that some of them became my friends, but it wasn't necessary. It's just seeing that other people have been on the path before you. And part of that is to try to act as if to be on the path with them. And then part of it is when you see someone coming up behind you model for them, what's going to get them forward as well. Definitely. Now, I'm very conscious of your time. I wanted to ask you before we wrap up our interview, one of the things you wrote about in This Is Marketing is this notion of begin with the hurdle that you can leap. Uh, So take down the barriers, think about what you can jump today, tomorrow, and and go from there. If you were leaving our audience with, I guess, something to reflect on and think about, we've touched on so much in this conversation, what hurdle would you encourage them to begin with leaping? Where do they start in terms of putting this passion, these ideas that they've got, this want to see the world look different, into into being you can't change people who don't want to be changed but you might be able to influence people who are enrolled in a journey to change so find 10 people 10 people who are eager to understand to walk through the world differently and change them if you can't change 10 people with your story you need a better story if you can change 10 people they'll tell the others and instead of thinking about big numbers instead of thinking about mass Just think about 10, because if it works on 10, it might work on 100. And one quick follow-up, if you were encouraging them on how to write that great story, is there any bit of advice you'd say to connect with those 10, what do you need to do to tell a great story? You know how to tell a great story. You just have to practice more. And to practice more, you have to fail more. I love that. So accessible to each and every one of us. Seth Godin, it has been such a delight to be in conversation with you. Thank you so much for being a part of this series and for everything that you're doing to help people right across the world be the change that they want to see. Well, thank you for the work you're doing. It matters. And on behalf of all the people whose lives are going to get just a little bit better, 
Thank you. Thanks to EY for partnering with us to amplify people following the path of most resistance. We hope you enjoyed the conversation and subscribe to the series. Are you a trailblazer or inspired by a trailblazer? Leave a comment, let us know, join the movement.